I think one of the side effects of all my early poems being written in these metaphors about prime numbers and dinosaurs and sunshine is that although they are about what I specifically was going through as a teenager trying to work out my place in the world about people that I knew because it's become this third space and this kind of more abstract story I've had people halfway around the world message me telling me that they can relate to that because they know someone who is their sunshine kid or they have someone who they can see in these poems and I think that's one of the things I love about it becoming more of a story and less of a specific autobiographical recount. What happens when two numbers fall in love? When a bumblebee defies a scientist's predictions? What will the first hug with a loved one after lockdown feel like? You encounter such tales when you dive into the magical, intricate, sometimes hypnotic poetry of Harry Baker. You, along with two million other people, may have seen him performing his poetry on the TED stage, or you may know him as the youngest person to be a Poetry World Slam champion. This week on Storyteller, we get to dive into the sunshiny, curious and meticulous head of, dare I say it, a happy poet. I'm your host, Lisa Golden. This conversation is about so much more than poetry, I got to speak to Harry about the power of play, of joy, of hope. We spoke about what it's like to be a TED celebrity, and he very generously read me his lockdown poem, When This Is Over, which is just beautiful. And I got the chance to like dig into the nerdier questions I have about the nitty-gritty of what you have to do to write such a linguistically complex poem. So here it is, my conversation with the wonderful Harry Baker. So hi, Harry. Thank you so much for joining me on Storyteller. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, I am, I'm so chuffed to to have you on um, uh, for the, anyone listening. I desperately wanted to do a story on you a couple of years ago, and I actually can't believe it was almost three years ago that I um, messaged you. But I still have my um, The Sunshine Kid book, and I read it, reread it last night, which was such a pleasure. Um, so what have you been, can you, well, first of all, can you introduce yourself to anyone on here who might not know who you are and, uh, tell me what you've been up to the last couple of years? Yes. So my name is Harry Baker. I am a full-time poet and last couple of years I've been playing around with where I can take that. I got into poetry through these poetry slams, which were competitions where you were taking turns to perform and the audience would vote on the favourite. So I've always had an element of trying to connect with people in that live space. But the last few years I've been doing stuff with music under the umbrella of comedy as well as theatre as well as spoken word. So I think it's about trying to bring my words to people and see how they can interact with them, whether or not they would profess to be fans of poetry in the first place, I guess. For me, uh, coming from South Africa, I was always like, if you think of a British poet, right? You <laughs> think of like, there's a very like, I guess, you know, we were taught um, British literature and British poetry in South Africa. And that's just such a removed space, you know, sitting in like the heat of South Africa and reading about like the, the Misty Moors and stuff. And you're like, what are, you <laughs> like, what are they talking about? Um, and when my friend um, Aliena sent me your, one of your TED videos, I just was, I just... I'm like many, many, many people, I think over 2 million people um, was like, oh, this is just fantastic. So um, how did you come to that style of poetry? Like, can you remember the first poem you wrote? Yes. Well, the first poem I have record of was when I was 13 years old. There was a competition in my school run by a fair trade chocolate company called Divine Chocolate. And the theme was a vision for the future. And yeah. so my vision for the future was that everyone would have loads of chocolate. And I wrote a poem that was just me trying to rhyme as many words as I could. And it was all about chocolate. And I won a prize in this competition, which was a box of chocolate. So age 13, I thought poetry is great because you get loads of <laughs> you free get chocolate. chocolate. Okay. Um, 
But at that point, I only ever wrote stuff when it was for something at school or for homework or whatever. And then at the time I was getting into music, I had friends who were in bands and I just started listening to, I guess, kind of hip hop and rap music for the first time and hearing how playful you could be with language and how it could be clever, but also funny, but also just, I guess, exploratory, you know, playful for the sake of it. And that was in keeping with the the poems I read growing up. And so it was from that that my dad took me to a poetry open mic event and it just kind of blew my mind in terms of, like you say, you have these expectations of what poetry is because of what you've studied or not. And so to see people who were doing things that were personal, doing things that were serious, doing things that were completely ridiculous. And the one thing they had in common was that they had taken the time to write this and wanted to share it with people because they felt it was important or worth doing. Mm. That for me completely sucked me in. And, you know, I remember getting goosebumps just from what someone was saying or being made to laugh or being made to cry all in this short space of time. And it was just words, you know, there wasn't any overly emotional backing track or theatrical trickery to it. It was just raw communication and it it felt really powerful and I just wanted to get more involved that's amazing and so I mean from that that point so I guess you were a teenager then um can you tell us a bit about the sort of transition to like what you were going to study to ending up in poetry yes so I at school I was I was very academic I I loved learning stuff I, I put myself into it and so I think, especially because I was good at maths and science, you were encouraged to think about studying medicine because it's a way of, you know, being clever and helping people at the same time. So that's what I thought I wanted to do. I did maths, chemistry, biology, further maths for A-levels, applied to the medicine at university. And so because I thought I was going into this kind of long degree and lifestyle choice, I took a gap year in the UK And that was when I started going to these poetry performance nights, open mics, slams, anywhere that I had a chance to go on stage. And at this point, I had two poems. So I would just kind of (laughs) rotate them and go anywhere that would have me. And it was either about prime numbers or bumblebees, depending on how the mood took me. (laughs) And so through that, I got to know this community. But more importantly, I felt myself come alive on stage. And when I was performing my poems for the first time, I could celebrate all these different parts of me, my sense of humour, as well as my attention to detail, as well as my personal philosophy on life. Whereas at the time, you know, I was doing maths and science tests and it felt like the results you got from that, a hundred other people could get. And I was applying to medicine where, you know, at the time there were 20 people applying for every one place. And I knew there were people out there who were more sure of what they wanted to do or more committed or in my opinion would have been better doctors than me but I felt like I was the only person in the world who could write my poems and something about that felt important in the act of creating and on one level it's hard to justify I think especially in the UK during this pandemic you know people have Mm. come to their doorstep to applaud the NHS because they're clearly making a difference (laughs) to people's lives no one's doing that for poets as far as I know (laughs) And so it's a different kind of purpose or or sense of how you can help the world or help people. But even then, I felt like there, it was a necessary thing to do. And at that point, I, like I said, I'd done all kind of maths and science subjects. So studying English wasn't really an option, but I still liked maths and that side of things. So I went to study maths with the aim that I'd have more time to do poetry on the side and then somewhere along the line that became graduating and doing poetry full-time and now like doing maths for fun on the side which is something (laughs) I never expected to say I love that that's a that's a great balance and I do I'll have to disagree with you on poetry during the pandemic but we can talk about that a bit later in the conversation because I I have a feeling that a lot of people turned to poetry during the pandemic to help them make sense of everything that was going on yeah um but before we get there um I I have a sorry I've got a little um, my little sticky notes in your book you sort of explaining how they judge winning poetry 
and you say essentially it's a way of quantifying the unquantifiable art of poetry and it's fun if you win a poetry slam you can call yourself a slam champion and pretend you're some kind of wrestler if you lose a poetry slam you can tell everyone how poetry is a subjective art form and shouldn't be judged so (laughs) I just love that so can you tell I mean can you just explain what it's like to be at a world poetry slam championship yes so the person who started up Poetry Slams was a construction worker in Chicago and he did it as a way of kind of trying to claim poetry back for the people and say that you didn't have to have studied an English degree to get something from it. And so a lot of these early Poetry Slams, it was acknowledged that the competition part was just a bit of a gimmick to keep the audience entertained. Mm. And so even on local levels when I've done slams, most people know this and obviously you try as hard as you can and you've written your poems as best as you can so you want people to like them so I think everyone performing in a slam has a dream scenario where everyone holds up a 10 out of 10 and tells them they're brilliant Mm. but I've I've been at slams where you know it's just down to the specific people with the scorecards and the whole point is people feel differently about it so that's all when everyone's speaking the same language so to take that to an international context where we're in Paris and everyone's come from different parts of the world and are all performing in different languages from the very start that week was amazing because everyone knew it's a very difficult thing to judge and it depends on how well your work's translated or how well it feels on the day or that kind of thing. And so it was this amazing sense of camaraderie and everyone rooting for each other. And then at the same time, when I won it, that was kind of the moment when I decided, you know what, maybe I could do poetry full time because Mm. it's got me this far. So you do still believe in it and it goes on your sort of poetry CV. But I remember coming back and... The, the most common response to people when I'd say, oh, yeah, I won the Poetry Slam World Cup would be, oh, wow, that sounds amazing. What is it? Or what does that mean? <laughs> so it's kind of that thing. It's a very niche thing to have done. Hmm. And I loved it and I love the people that I met. But whenever I describe it to people, I feel like I always have to be a bit tongue in cheek or explain that, you know, it was the best poem in the world according to five French strangers in 2012 yeah yeah because I think also I think for poetry to work you you have to be able to connect with people I don't think it works if you're an arrogant poet I think if you sort of take yourself too seriously you forget the point of what you're doing which I think is trying to connect with people and connect he did that particular performance has been viewed over two million times on the TED platform A love poem for Lonely Pride Numbers, named 59, introduced the world to Harry's unique blend of artful and razor-sharp wordplay that has your head spinning but also makes you smile. Um, So I'd be really curious, like, how, A, sort of the preparation that goes in before you you did um, your performances and what it's like afterwards. I mean, it it must be, do you just have the entire world trying to get into your inbox or what happens after you have such a successful TED video? Yes. So I, the event I did was a TEDx event in Exeter. And so TEDx are these independently organized events and the people running it had seen me at a festival and asked me to go along. And my understanding was I was going to be the light entertainment in between the very dense, serious talks. And we went for dinner the night before and I was sat next to on one side, someone who had invented a way of 3D printing prosthetic limbs specifically for children. So you could look like Iron Man and be the coolest kid in the playground rather than someone who gets picked on. And on the other side was a woman who had, triplets and the next year walked to the North Pole and I was there in the middle being like I'm studying maths and I write poems and just thinking these are such impressive people Hmm. but when it came to on the day I got given a lanyard and it said sort of Ted Speaker on it and that felt really cool and once I was on stage I thought even though I feel like there's some imposter syndrome going on here I know how to be on stage and and how to speak and so I was comfortable in that specific moment even though now looking back on it 
I feel like I'm talking really fast and my mouth is quite dry. But at the time <laughs> I felt like, you know what, I can hold this space. And when I came off, I was I was shaking because I thought there is an opportunity that lots of people will see this. And and mm. the joy of doing my poems is I get to perform them again and again. And yeah. they do feel new every time, depending on who's in the room, it gives it a new life. But again, thinking, okay, if this is a TED audience, are they going to be analysing it on a more sort of specific level? Are they still going to laugh at the jokes? Because the TED Talks I've seen before had been very dense. Yeah. When actually, having been there for the day, it covered this huge range of topics and tone. And I love all the stuff that, that TED do. But also, I, my gut feeling was, I'm good at writing poems. So I'm going to just perform poems and talk a little bit in between rather than give a 15 minute theory on what I think about poetry because I couldn't really back that up at the time. Uh-huh. And so it came off, it felt amazing, but it wasn't for six months that I got messaged and said that your TEDx talk has been chosen to go on the main TED.com website. And so they do one talk a day on their main website. And I think it's, like 1% of TEDx talks get chosen Mm. and almost everything that goes on the main TED website will get a million views in its first day by default. So, and I remember where I was when I got that email is in my final year of doing my maths degree, I was at the back of the room, completely not understanding what was going on on the math side of things Mm. and wanting to sort of jump up and shout, (laughs) yes, amazing. But also at that point, in that specific maths class, I didn't really know many people and no one knew that I had this sort of secret life as a poet elsewhere, as well as being the confused kid at the back of maths. Yeah. So I just sort of held it in, but had this sense of calm, but you know what, I may well fail this maths module, but I think I've got something else going on here. Yeah. And so then the guy who had helped do the tech stuff for that specific event got in touch and said, once this goes live, you should be ready because requests are going to come in and you know you want to have a website and and have somewhere where people can contact you kind of thing um but what I've loved about it is that it's it wasn't so much uh one crazy week and then it all went away it feels like even now there's people who are seeing it for the first time who get in touch and I think over the years there's been more of an emphasis on on what it means to go viral and that is a sense of you have this huge amount of fame and then it all disappears. But I think what was nice about the TED Talk being the thing that everyone saw was actually it's 15 minutes of me doing quite intricate poetry. So I feel like if someone sat through that and watched it, it's not just because it had a catchy title or they clicked it because they were bored. You know, it feels like they're invested in it. And so it was the best showcase of what I could do. And actually off the back of that, it's led to a lot of schools gigs and getting booked for other things and I think as well doing a niche thing like performance poetry a lot of people haven't heard of it but a lot of people had heard of TED so suddenly when I can say oh yeah I also did this TED talk that for them is something that they can understand and reference yeah yeah it's sort of yeah like a shorthand for um I don't want to say like I'm a serious person but yeah like there's a shorthand yeah. when someone says that they've they've had a successful TED talk um yeah. so you said that you know before you didn't have a a theory on poetry do you have one now yes I mean what's interesting what is a niche record I think I hold is that <laughs> I have done I think I've done the most TED talks out of anyone really? so I've done <laughs> sort of six or seven TEDx talks now and yeah. only that first one got shared on the main site and then the next one I did I thought oh, okay I'm going to try and tell a bit more of my personal story with this and that was about actually you know, changing from studying medicine to doing poetry and what that means. And then basically I got, I kept getting asked to do them and I loved Ted so much, but it was basically me just about having enough poems to do another Ted talk. And so my favorite one I did, which feels quite niche was at TEDx Vienna. I'd lived in Germany for a year. So I was talking about learning German as a foreign language and how actually for me as a mathematician, German is a very logical language and as a poet learning a new language it's like having a new set of toys to play with so whereas in that moment I was very aware I was not a 
professor of linguistics. And by doing this TED talk in Vienna about speaking German, everybody in the audience spoke better than German than I did. So I couldn't lecture them on that from a position of authority. But in the Venn diagram of poetry and maths and German, in that three-way niche middle section, from my lived experience, actually, I felt like I did have something interesting that's worth saying. And I did a poem as part of it. But I think that was the longest I had spoken without falling back into my safety net of doing a poem. Mm -hmm. Because when I'm doing a poem, I have thought about every single word and every single syllable. So start to finish, I know what I'm doing. So when I first started performing poetry, it used to be that I would do a poem, be really happy, and then be really nervous and jumpy in between. And then as soon as I was into the next poem, I was fine again. Whereas I think the thing that's changed the most over the years is a sense of composure in between poems and thinking about the way that you frame them and the way that you present them to people massively changes how they're taken in. And, you know, when I started, I was doing these poetry slams where you've got three minutes to say everything you want to say. There's not really any time to give it context to introduce it. You just have to be high impact in your face. Here's my thing. Whereas now I do, you know, 40 minute hour long shows where as well as the poetry, there's a sense of storytelling and context and broader theories on the world. And I think that's a more enjoyable space for me to occupy. I love asking storytellers about the audience, whether they feel vulnerable with them, whether they perform for them, whether they want their approval. Harry's answer surprised me because he first mentioned his poem, The Sunshine Kid, which felt for me the most autobiographical of his poems. He had a really interesting answer when I asked him who he writes his poetry for. Yes, it's changed over time and I've tried to be aware of it because when I started out, because I was doing these poetry slams, when you finished a poem, you would literally get given a score out of 10 by people in front of you. And so I would be really nervous. I'd write a poem, I'd perform it. And in that moment, I would find out whether or not it was good according to the audience. And I remember one of the poems I did in that first TED talk, which is also a poem I did in the World Slam final, is called The Sunshine Kit. And at the time, that was the most personal poem I had. Because when I first started, I loved poets who could be vulnerable and personal, but I felt like I didn't have that dramatic backstory to draw upon. And I loved creating these other worlds and talking about prime numbers or the paper people alliteration thing. So to actually talk about myself felt like a huge thing. But the first time I did that poem in a slam, it got really low scores because it's just a bit of a gentler poem. It wasn't as high impact, whatever. And I remember going away and thinking, oh, that's a shame. I really love this poem, but it's clearly not as good as my others. And then I had to take a moment to, to check that and think, oh no, what that means is that in three minutes, it's not as good as whipping five people up into a poetic frenzy. frenzy. That doesn't mean it's not a good poem. Yeah. And so I've learned to actually trust my gut a bit more on what I think is good and to realise that there's different contexts in which different poems work. You know, even now I've got poems that I perform in theatres to a silent audience that feel like it has a different gravitas to being asked to sort of get up on a table in the pub and entertain people. There's different things that you would choose. And I think a poem feels very different if it's performed to three people than it does if it's performed to 300. And both can feel intimate and powerful and, and different. But I think what I found interesting about the last six months of not being able to perform live to an audience in the same way is that I've written new things and I don't yet know if they are finished already because it is when I'm stood on a stage and sharing them with people that it kind of confirms if it's had the desired effect that I wanted to. And so I started to then write more reflective personal stuff that was just for me. And then I think a few months in, I started to go the other way and just write ridiculous stuff to keep myself entertained. And then one thing that's been lovely is in amongst this, I've been doing 
commissions for people. So, you know, through a page, you can leave a donation and I'll write you a poem. And suddenly you've got a one person audience and you're often writing things that no one else will really get. And so I was asked to write a poem for a nine year old girl who had quite low self-esteem. And it was a family friend who told me all of this information about her. And actually, even in the stuff that was shared with me, you feel like you're given a window into this person's life. I've never met them, but I feel like I know them. Yeah. And so actually, the best possible poem I can write there is one that she as a nine-year-old will hear and listen to and get. And so that's not a poem that I'm going to go and read at a slam hobby around the world to try and impress some strangers. But that's uh, such a tender and intimate thing. And so I, I've learned to see that not every poem needs to be for everyone yeah but I think there will always be an element of writing things to be said aloud or to be performed in some context yeah and that shaping the process as it goes yeah so that's really interesting because um I reread the sunshine kid um this morning actually and it 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 does seem uh autobiographical but I didn't want to assume that and it's just really fascinating because um, my friend who sent me, she sent me falafel loafel. So she's also, she speaks German. She's, um, it's my friend Aliena. And she, I don't want to say she's like a female version of you, but she's like, <laughs> she's like one of the happiest, um, kindest, like I always just call her like a human ray of sunshine people. Mm. And it's so funny that she then, you know, saw that in you and was so excited about that. And I just be really do you know like do you think much about were you always like that as a kid like where does that temperament come because you do seem like a really happy positive um person yeah I think one of the reasons why I called my book the sunshine kid was because as well as that poem feeling personal and important to me it felt like that was the best way to sum up who I was and how I saw the world and I think part of my journey into poetry and performing was thinking this has been the best way that I've found to celebrate that because even if I have felt that internally I can still be very introverted in the group of people I'm not often the loudest one there and so what I mean what the poem describes is a friend who saw that in me and encouraged me to to be more like that with everyone mm. but I think I feel so honoured that I'm given a space where I can share that outlook on the world and have people respond to it and listen to it and I think one of the side effects of all my early poems being written in these metaphors about prime numbers and dinosaurs and sunshine is that although they are about what I specifically was going through as a teenager trying to work out my place in the world about people that I knew because it's become this third space and this kind of more abstract story, I've had people halfway around the world message me telling me that they can relate to that because they know someone who is their sunshine kid or Mm. they have someone who they can see in these poems. And I think that's one of the things I love about it becoming more of a story and less of a specific autobiographical recount is that I think I used to think the best way that people could relate to you is if you talked about stuff that you both had in common. But I think by talking about the human experience, that's something that everyone has gone through to some extent. And so, you know, I think about the art, the music, the poetry that moves me. And it's very rarely from someone who's in a similar position than I'm in. Actually, I feel like when I'm given a window into someone else's world that feels like such a a rich experience to have so I think whether or not the stuff I write is specifically autobiographical I think it's at its best when there is still a level of honesty in it whether that's about what I'm feeling or or where I am in that moment and I think also I, I felt like when I was starting whether it was comedy or poetry, I was just seeing a lot of people who felt very cynical about the world. And absolutely, there is a place for that. But I just didn't want to fall into that same trap of just sort of being really negative the whole time. And so it felt like I doubled down and I was kind of relentlessly optimistic all of the time. 
And that's been really difficult during this current global pandemic because I've not been able to sort of ignore the anxiety and worry that comes with that. And I've had to kind of take moments to be low because that's part of having some kind of healthy mental health. But I think it's always been my default to try and see the brightness in things. And so when I'm writing, that is absolutely comes in there as well. And even when I'm writing about heavier stuff or more serious things, it will come with an element of hope or reflection or will come out the other side of this. Because that's naturally how I have always seen the world, I think. Well, you see, I I think that's amazing because, um, you know, from my background, I've been in, I'm coming up on like eight years in the news industry that I've just sort of left um, at the beginning of lockdown. And I really felt at the beginning of this year, I really something clicked in my head that I'd also just been in very, um, it has obviously been an incredibly turbulent time and being in the news, you're just sort of sitting and you, you, you know, as the, the way we receive information has changed over the last couple of years, you are just sort of sitting in a hyper stream of just conflict and, um, bad news. And especially if you work in international news, it's very, I just, I think now having stepped away from it, realized how overwhelming that was just to sit in this like stream of, of pain all the time. And at the beginning of this year, I suddenly, I, I really had this moment when I realized how playfulness and fun is not a, um, uh, a frivolity it's this intensely powerful thing and I think it was really for me being a, a, a cynic or being a sort of person who's sort of maybe normally the Debbie Downer at the party it's weird it was it's been funny to me that in this time where um the this we've been in this incredible distress that I was like I was like no playfulness like this is how we how we get through it and this is how we survive is like this power of hope and optimism and playfulness um so yeah I just I love that because I think yeah I I think I'm sort of a convert I'm like an early Mm. I'm a recent convert to the power of play and that was I wouldn't have thought it was that important but I also remember like a couple of weeks into lockdown and you know we all were on this roller coaster ride and I just thought I just haven't had a I just want someone to like play a prank on me or have like (laughs) have a joke or have a laugh you know what I mean it it was so absent and I could feel like the power of that absence so I'm just praising yay for the the hope and the playfulness and the um positivity because I think it's been um uh undervalued for the power that it has yeah and I think yeah and I think one of the things that moved me away from slam poetry is that because you're being judged at the end of three minutes on the impact a poem has had, often the highest impact poems are the ones that are very in-your-face, political, potentially talking about really traumatic things. And so when it becomes a sense of those being pit against each other in a competition format, the, the different scenes I've been in, when I went to the US American Poetry Slam finals, just as a visitor, you came away from that feeling really drained, you know, really moved and it's really powerful, but actually sort of despairing about the world that you're in because of Mm. all of this incredibly important stuff that's been highlighted. But by contrast, I went to the German slam poetry finals and it is one of the funnest events to be at that I've ever seen because the poetry is, yes, talking about political things, but it's also very funny and celebratory. And I think one of the things I love about the UK scene is it's both of those things. You know, you can have very personal, emotional poetry, but also very light poetry. And I think something I've come to appreciate is the balance of of the heavy and the light. And I think, you know, those words have multiple connotations in and of themselves. And I think the richness that poetry has and that has helped me during the last six months is it being able to provide both of these things. And I've always said, you know, my favourite poets are the ones who can make me laugh and make me cry, ideally at the same time, because that's such a cathartic thing to be able to do. Yeah. And I think if it's if it's one or the other, it is still absolutely amazing. But if it's that whole spectrum of human emotion, I think it's, yeah, such an important thing to be able to have. 
Up next, Harry reads his poem, When This Is Over, about life in lockdown. I saw it early on during the pandemic, and I'll admit, I had a little cry listening to it the first time. I hope you enjoy it. I've linked the written poem in the show notes. It's so beautiful. There's so much in there. It's so densely packed with with meaning, with sound, with this longing that I know a lot of us felt during lockdown. And I just was so excited to be able to ask him questions about how he writes a poem afterwards. So enjoy, and then we get a dig in afterwards. Maybe this would be a nice time if you do have a poem that you could read for us. Yes, absolutely. So this poem is one that I wrote during lockdown that seems to be the one that most people have responded to. And I think, again, it's that sense of being able to articulate something that other people are feeling that they didn't realise they were feeling. And it came from the simplest notion of a few months in, having not hugged anyone and thinking about wanting to hug my mum. And, and, you know, that's such a human instinct, but, you know, then trying to articulate that. So this is just called um, When This Is Over. When this is over, I will hold you closer than you've ever known. When you see me, you can squeeze me till you feel my very bones. How I long to let you know that I won't want to let you go. There will be so much left to say, yet still some things are better shown. I will wrap my arms around you for the seconds we have lost. The words will find a way to wait as we locate the weight of us. Though we are changed, there stays a sense of same about the way we touch. Though it is strange, we will embrace how long it takes us to adjust. The world of everything we knew is somewhere we cannot return. The world of everything that's new is one we'll build from what we've learned. We didn't know ashes could rise again until we'd seen them burn. And the next time I'm stood in front of you, we'll feel like it's been earned. Because when the start has given way, it's only then the end can enter. When the heart is given space, it will forever tend to tender. These affections kept at bay will once again descend to centre. Something will have come to yearn as hummingbirds connect to nectar. For all the overwhelming moments where I felt like giving up, There is no point where I have worried, we've forgotten how to love. And when the future's all we've got, well then that's got to be enough. All that I know is when I'm low that I have wanted to be hugged. And if you'd rather have a handshake, that is absolutely fine. Even away from me is saying, I am glad that you're alive. Whichever form it takes, when this has passed and we've started again, I will no longer take for granted any chances to connect. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. I love, I love that poem. I um, I saw it when you first put it on Instagram at um, uh, was it would have been a couple of months ago now during the pandemic. Yeah, and yeah, it, yeah. Uh, definitely made me cry. I'll say that for sure. But um, so um, without, I mean, I guess I, I won't uh, go line through line. But even just um, so so when you're writing a poem like that, there's obviously I just as a as a non poet, um. I can't imagine like the level of of work that goes even just I'm just thinking the the line about the hummingbird there it's so intricate and there's so many um ideas locked into these words that then have this cadence you know what I mean I'm just like I'm so fascinated does that just come out or do you do you have the idea and then you find the words or you have the words and then you lock in the meaning I'm I'm so curious (laughs) like how what's the process like when you write a poem like that yeah, I remember I, I've i done lots of workshops in schools and I do performances and have like questions and answers. And I once went in with another musician. And one thing that the students ask a lot is, you know, how long does it take to write a poem? Mm. And my default answer would be, it varies hugely, but start to finish, it's a couple of months because you're just chipping away at it. And this mm. musician I was with said to write a song for him, it takes about half an hour because wow. actually once you've got the idea it just sort of flows. And so I think for me over the years, what I have refined is a sense of technicality and what's possible with words. And I think as with doing a sport or playing a musical instrument, I'm very good now, very quickly, of knowing what rhymes and how to move stuff together. But I think the thing that takes ages for me 
is that initial idea in it feeling strong and having something that's worth saying. And so even though this came out of that space of during the pandemic, thinking about, you know, seeing certain people, the the main image in my head as I was writing it was actually of of being on tour and being away from home and that yearning of being able to come home and, and hug my wife again. And and the flip side of it is actually during lockdown, she's the only person I've been able to hug. <laughs> and that's been a really nice thing. And we've been really close. And I think anyone feels guilty for having a nice time during this, but that's been the silver lining. And so it was, I was trying to write it in a sense that captured a spirit of the time, but that also could hold relevance in years to come. And I mean, one of the weird things is actually a few months on, it, there's a more desperate yearning for hugging people because that's still not really allowed and everyone's a bit confused about it. Yeah. But then I think once that's there, it's a thing about trying to use the rhyme and the rhythm to give it some pace. But the default setting for me of wordplay is, you know, it's almost using puns and puns are there to provide humour. And so you don't want to take people out of the emotion of it by having a sort of clever joke. Yeah. But I think... There's always been a a level of, I guess, playfulness, but also trying to fit things in a certain space. And I think when it can come together in such a simple way, it feels like, oh, okay, this isn't something I've plucked out of thin air. I feel like I've tapped into these words that already exist. And there's certain ways of expressing things that I come across and I think, oh yeah, this actually just feels right. And I don't need to perform this in front of an audience to know that it works because it feels like the most crisp, articulate way of saying what I want to say. Yeah. And for me, that that is a huge part of what rhythm and rhyme is. And I think one of the things that I find difficult about writing non-rhyming poetry is I never know when it's finished or when it's right because there's not that moment of stuff clicking into place. Whereas I remember the, the the hummingbird stanza, the idea of our hearts will tend towards tender mm. and then wanting to match that rhyme scheme and thinking actually you can tend to tender, you can have the ends that enter, you can descend to centre and you can connect to nectar. But thinking rather than that being a really fast-paced, showy-offy rap verse, to be able to to hold that in that similar gentle way where people can also take in the words and the meaning feels like more of a skill that I've tried to tap into of using the wordplay and the cleverness in a way that gets your point across better rather than getting in the way of it because you know I think the point of the poem is not to say hey look how clever the rhymes are (laughs) the point of the poem is to get across this meaning yeah. And if the rhymes can help that and help people lock into it, then absolutely that's brilliant. But you, I've been guilty in the past of getting too obsessed with every single syllable being really pernickety, but you can't quite say what you want to say in amongst that. So I think if you can have that happy medium where, yes, you're being really thoughtful about everything you're saying, but realising that sometimes the sentiment needs to come first and the words can fit around it rather than... Oh, because morning rhymes with yawning. I need to talk about being tired in the morning. morning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's it's that kind of it's a two way street, I think. And I think the more comfortable I've got with manipulating language and realizing how malleable it is, and I really love half rhymes, and so I really love sort of bending the rules. The more I've realized that actually, whatever it is you want to say, there will be a way of saying it. And learning to trust that and thinking that getting the message right first feels more important. And then later I can turn it into some kind of enjoyable simile or metaphor because then that just feels like it adds to it. But it's already got those bare bones and and core structure first. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. Well, I love it. It's um, fantastic. (laughs) Um, I just, I'm always just in awe. Like, I just love. there's such a thing when people are just, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I obviously sound like I'm blowing smoke up your butt, but like, it's just when people are excellent at something, there's something really so joyful about that, being able to see people just 
have a mastery of something, you know, whether it's poetry or someone, you know, um, I don't know, building a bench, you know what I mean? <laughs> There's just something yeah, really great. beautiful in that. Um, so, okay. So poetry in the pandemic, can you tell us a bit about your, your podcast? And, and you've already mentioned what it's like to be um, doing poetry during the pandemic, but um, yeah. Can you just tell me a bit about your experience and about something borrowed? Yes, definitely. That has been my, my favorite thing I've done. And so it was one of those things where I'd thought about it for a long time, but never got around to doing it. So when suddenly all live gigs were put on hold, it was the perfect space to make this thing happen. And it wasn't just a, oh, I'm bored at home with nothing to do. Let's make a thing. It was, oh yeah, okay. I've put thought into this and now feels like the perfect time for it to happen. And so the format is me and a guest take it in turns to share something old, something new, something borrowed and something blue. And it's almost always a poet. I've had a couple of musicians and a comedian. But I think what I love about it is that I know a few poets where we'll be on, on the same sort of circuit together. And actually, if you're doing a 20 minute set, you can do almost word for word the same thing that you've done before. And it's still brilliant and it's still new to the audience. But as a performer, I wanted to give people a space where they had an excuse to, yes, show off something old that they're proud of but also be given an excuse to do something that's maybe not quite as finished. And then there's something borrowed element I've loved because actually you get to see people's influences and by hearing the people that they listen to, it kind of opens up this whole new world. And then the blue part is the bit that gets a bit abstract and weird. But I think in amongst that, it's been really lovely to have these conversations, to hear some of the method behind people's work, but also in a time where live performance isn't possible to have a performance space on that podcast. And because a lot of the guests are people I've known through the scene, we're doing it on Instagram Live. We are each other's one person audience. And even having one person to perform to that is a friendly face that you know and trust feels so much better than performing to, you know, I've done a, I've done a Zoom gig for a school where all of the students had their microphones and videos off. So I was oh, performing no. <laughs> yeah. through a silent computer, knowing that there are 20 people there probably listening, but also they might have gone to get a biscuit. I have no way of telling. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. so to have someone to perform to or at that somehow focuses you slightly felt like a way of having something in the in-between space. And it wasn't trying to be a gig. It wasn't trying to be an interview. It was a bit of both. But also the flip side of that is it's given me a deadline each week to try and write a new poem for. And so for someone who claims it takes them months to write a poem, it's been a really good self-imposed deadline to be creative in a way that feels manageable. Because I think when lockdown hit, I thought, oh, great, I'll write a novel in the first two yeah, weeks. Yeah. And when that's not possible, <laughs> you beat yourself up about it. But this has felt like a really lovely way of producing work and sharing it, but also maintaining friendships and professional relationships because for a lot of poets it is quite a lonely job because by its definition you have to sit by yourself and think for ages yeah, yeah. and so to be able to celebrate that and share that with people has been such a lovely thing to be able to do and there's a couple of poets who I didn't know beforehand who now having done this with I'm really excited to share a stage with in real life yeah that's great I love that I know that's I think that's also this this powerful thing is that like we have um been forced to find new ways to connect with people and like even for for me like I've lived away from my family for a long time um and you know I've always you know over the years I've sort of settled in with people who can who are okay with like skyping and zooming and doing hangouts and stuff and there was this beautiful obviously the first weeks it got a bit much the first week like all the pub quizzes and stuff I was like yeah oh, much. but um it's been amazing, like also just reconnected with old colleagues and old friends, um, you know, just because suddenly people were so much more willing to like jump on the phone or jump on a hangout. And it kind of just opened up the world a little bit, which I thought was lovely. Um, Definitely. Okay, great. Well, I just want to be respectful of your time. So where can people find you? Where's the best place for them to come see you, see your work, follow your podcast? 
Um, so my website is just harrybaker.co and that links through to everything, including the podcast. Uh, you can watch some of the TED Talks on there and I'll post updates of, of gigs when they happen. Um, otherwise, depending on your preference, on Twitter and Instagram, it's just Harry Baker Poet. And there's videos on YouTube if you want to see anything. Um, so yeah, I think one of the benefits of this is I can't do stuff in person, but by doing stuff online, suddenly anyone and everyone can tune in if they want to. And so that's mm -hmm. been a really lovely thing, is actually thinking, whilst the TED Talks had this huge international audience, you know, I mostly perform in the UK. And so there's been people who've been able to tune into these quote unquote live gigs on Instagram from halfway around the world to places where I would never normally get a chance to perform possibly. And so I've been trying to see that as, as a plus side and as a benefit. And so, yeah, on Wednesdays, I've been doing my something borrowed and just in general, yeah, social media is where I update stuff. Nice, great. Thank you so much for coming on Storyteller today. Thank you so much for having me. It's honestly been a, a joy. Thanks again to Harry. You can get all the links you've mentioned in the show notes, including his podcast, which I highly recommend you check out. I really meant what I said in the middle there about finding the importance of joy and play this year. These are incredibly tough times. I don't need to list off the many challenges this year has thrown at us. And it's easy and perhaps even natural to despair. But I hope this episode brought some joy, some fun, some intrigue and some playfulness into your day. Poetry is there for all of us in these times and Harry's poetry and work and podcast are spaces where I feel like you can just rest in your humanness for a little while. And I hope that this week with this conversation, this podcast made a bit of space for you to rest. As always, please do share the podcast with anyone who you think has a curious mind, anyone who wants a little injection of the wonderful, complex humanness of us all that can come through their phones once a week in between all the news and pictures of people's holidays. You can find Storyteller on Instagram at Storyteller underscore pod and on Twitter at StorytellerPod1. You can email me at StorytellerPod at gmail.com. I always love to hear your thoughts. I've had such great feedback. I'm so glad you all enjoyed uh, Going Medieval last week. That was definitely our most successful podcast to date. I really do love hearing the feedback. I'm always willing to grow and learn. And I think I'm growing and learning. And I hope this podcast is getting better, a little bit better every week. Until next time. Kind of at the end of these, I want to be like, love you. <laughs>